What is up, good people? Welcome back to the Holy Shit Pod. I'm Brandon T. Maxwell, and today, Sam, Katie, and I are talking about anti-intellectualism in Christian communities. What does it mean to be a person of faith? Does it mean that you have to check your brain at the door of your worshiping community? Growing up, my religious community placed faith and reason at opposite ends of the spectrum. To be educated, to go to school, to study religion, to engage in any kind of critical thinking was at odds with faith. Well, that was the implicit message, at least. I'm really thankful to Holy Shit Pod listener Piper from Tennessee for submitting this discussion topic. Piper, I think we may have been raised in very similar churches. I hope today's discussion is helpful. We would love to hear from you again after you've had a chance to listen. And if you are like Piper and you have topics you'd like us to discuss, just send an email to holyshit at theolabmedia.com. We would love it if any of you would send us an email to help us discuss topics that are of interest to you. Now, you know what time it is, but before we get into the word for the people, we've got a few church announcements. As T.D. Jakes used to say, get ready, get ready, get ready. <laughs> Let's get into it. Good morning. Good morning to the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple of All Saints and Aints. Today's church announcements come to you courtesy of Foyo Soul Music. <laughs> what? <laughs> Ain't that Kurt Franklin's old label? Is it with a number four or a? No, it's fo f o apostrophe uh, yo apostrophe so. I had no idea what his first label was. This is news to me. I think it's his first label that he uh, produced God's property oh, on for yourself. That was the jam. Yep, that was. So the International Overseer of Music and Worship Arts, Kirk. Franklin, Kirk Roderick Franklin. I don't know if that's his real middle name. It might be. Wants everybody to know that he ain't been saved all of his life. If you haven't heard, Kirk went off. All O-F-F. In a recorded Mm -hmm. phone call with his son, Mm -hmm. Carry On Franklin. 30-something-odd-year-old son. He went off. He cussed like a third grader who just learned to cuss five (laughs) minutes ago. put my foot in, yo. (laughs) Yo, he went in. I said, what? So... I'm just like, Kurt Franklin, you proceeded to throw every single cuss word you possibly could into one sentence. So one, you didn't learn how to cuss well. But he wants y'all to know that he's a backslider and he ain't been saved all his life. He's been trying to tell us about grace and about mercy. And now he's told y'all why, because he wants to cuss out his son real hard in these streets. <laughs> and I know this is going to warrant deeper discussion. I don't know there are people going to be listening who's like, this is leads to trauma and this is just all these. Uh, I'm going to tell you, I got many cussing outs as a child. And as I look back and reflect on it, I think I deserved every one of them. Wait a minute, Sam. Every one of them. I don't condemn my mom at all. She made me the man I am. See, but this this bullshit is problem. Because <laughs> anytime this shit happens, y'all be like, well, it happened to me. <laughs> well, my, well, my mama cussed me out. I deserved every one of them. My daddy cussed me out. <laughs> look at me now. I'm like, really? Sam. What's that song uh, James Fortune got out? You deserve it. He, he deserved that cussing. Uh-uh. He said, I will, I'm not about to do this with you. He said, I will break your neck, nigga. <laughs> he did. But that's not even all he he said, like, all of y'all who were holy, y'all need to practice cussing. Just go home the next time you're mad at somebody, look in the mirror and practice cussing because Kurt Franklin clearly, like, took off his holiness for a moment. <laughs> oh, you can't hear me? Oh, you can't hear me? I'm going to say it like this. Yo, bitch ass, skinny motherfucking ass. 
back out the goddamn way before I put my foot in your ass. I was like, what was that? Like, what Wait. was that? And then it's clear Carrion knows how to cuss because he was like, fuck you, nigga. <laughs> and that's all it took. And then Kurt got so mad because he knew what he said sounded foolish. <laughs> and he said, I will break your neck, nigga. Don't you ever disrespect me. And hung up the phone because he was listen, scared. Listen, <laughs> do we know what the issue was? We still don't know, but they've been in therapy for like 55 years over whatever this is. Kirk Franklin's inability to cuss correctly may let us know that he doesn't do it often. <laughs> <laughs> so that means that the, the holy shit pod is actually doing a ministry to folks that don't cuss because they got to cuss every time they tell somebody about this show. So are we stripping people of their holiness when they talk about our show? No, we're empowering and emboldening their holiness. We want them to become more holy as a result of learning how to cuss well. Because when you cuss poorly, it's very unholy. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's too far. <laughs> Back to the original point. I, what I will say is I don't actually care about him cussing his son out. I think the problem for me is that people focused solely on the fact that he was cussing and made it about him cussing. Like, this is a man of God. This is a music artist. And it was like you had to be in one camp or the other. Is it bad that he cussed or is it wrong that he cussed? That's not actually the problem from my vantage point. The deeper issue is sort of this toxic masculinity and the abusive dynamics of that conversation. Kirk Franklin was engaging in verbal abuse of that young man. And yeah, maybe he was triggered. Maybe he was angry. But also, as an adult, he is responsible for his emotions. And so if he's having this issue with his son, for whatever the behavior is, for whatever the disrespect is, he's modeling that for his child. And then what we do in the culture is we say, oh, he was cussing. Okay, let's disregard the cussing for a moment and let's talk about exactly what he said. He said he's going to break off his foot in his ass. Like, that's abusive. Was this before or after he tried to get the, the therapist on the phone? You know, we really don't have the context. Carry On just posted that, you know, short clip. I'm not trying to defend either one of them. I, I know that we like to focus often on the things that were done wrong. I've seen a lot of people who've responded to this or posted about this and they say, oh, let's talk about mental health. Let's talk about why it's necessary to seek out help and all of these things. And then when you go back and listen to the response and even the call, you hear him say, especially in the response, that they've been in therapy, that they've been in counseling, that he tried to call the counselor during that phone call. Um, now, I'm certainly not excusing where he went with his response, but were some of those things the, the correct things to do in the midst of this situation? I think you're spot on. I think that's a really, really, really good point because at the end of the day, that is a good thing that he did. I think he realized, hey, this has gotten beyond something that I can handle in a one-on-one format. Let me call the therapist. And if it's true that they've been in therapy for years around these issues, then okay, great. You've been doing that work for all these years. I think the other thing, Sam, that has been helpful is Sean Ewing did several interviews where she was like coming out and in some ways, I think defending Kurt Franklin. And I mm -hmm. think this is often, and this is oftentimes what we see inside of abusive relationships and family systems we're in, as opposed to naming the behavior, the conversation, the tone of the conversation as abusive. She comes out there and she's basically saying, Kirk can't do nothing wrong. I stand with my husband and I stand with my son. You can't actually stand with both in this instance. Again, we don't know all the details. We just have a 15, 20 second clip from Carry On. But at the end of the day, I think still back to your point, Sam, the most important thing is that this family is in therapy for whatever this dynamic is. And that's what we need to be talking about. If this reflects what's happening in your household, I think it's imperative for you to think about what therapy looks like for your family and how you engage that resource as opposed to just praying about it. 
as opposed to just praying about it. So you, you're not saying that praying about it should stop or is wrong, or is there power in prayer for, for these types of things? There's always power in prayer, but God works through therapists as well. Those are not, those are not mutually exclusive, right? I say, I feel like the word always triggers me a little bit. There can be power in prayer. Oh, okay. I mean, I think, right? Because I, because I don't know what people's prayer habits are and what people's prayer expectations are, right? If you're praying for the sake of inner peace, praying for the sake of wisdom, praying for the sake of vulnerability, great. That's a mindful practice that can help center you and or ground you. But if you're praying that God's going to make a way out of no way, no, God's not going to do that. You actually have to invest in the work. You can't just sit there and say, oh, God, I want to pray for Kirion. God, I want to pray for Sean or God, I want to pray for Kirk. Because I think oftentimes when we pray, what we do is we use that as an opportunity, at least in my religious circles, to distance ourselves from the work that we need to do. So we pray for everybody else. Mm-hmm. God, if I'm mad at you, Katie, then I'm sitting here like, God, would you just change Katie's heart? God, you know that that <laughs> white woman is evil. God, you know that she's white supremacist. God, you know that she can't even see the fullness of her racism. But if you would just change her heart, but maybe the issue is I slashed your tires. And maybe I slashed them because of years of white supremacist behavior on your part. And so maybe I felt justified in that. But now I'm praying that God changes your heart because I slashed your tires. This took a turn. Now, so when I pray about you, I say, Lord, this man is an asshole every single day. Make me patient that I might not kick his ass today. So I do pray about me. Kick his ass. I wish you would try. Let me see. Let me let me quote Kurt Franklin. <laughs> you you skinny motherfucking ass. Listen, y'all, y'all got some serious issues. First of all, I agree with you, Brandon, 100% too often. And I think, I don't know if we're conscious to the fact that prayer often is used to distance us from the work. Even when I'm praying for folks who are in need of resources or in need of uh, help or assistance or those types of things. Even in my prayer, I start saying, you know, we don't expect this to materialize out of thin air, but condition us to know that we are called to do this work, condition us to understand that we have to get our hands dirty, if you will, or get involved in the transformation of communities and situations and circumstances. Yeah. And so so I'm I'm with you 100% on that. I mean, I think the shortest way to say that is prayer is not about God. Prayer is about you. Mm -hmm. Prayer is about enacting, enlivening, awakening something inside of yourself. It's about reminding you of who you are and helping you get back to a place of being grounded. So if prayer for you is always about the other person and or about some sort of supernatural intervention on the part of a deity, you're not actually praying. But if prayer for you is saying, God, the next time I encounter someone who needs assistance, whether that be financial, whether that be um, in the form of food or drink, some sort of sustenance, God, remind me that I have resources and help me not to have a mindset of scarcity so that I can do what's necessary. I play a role. I have an active role. And if you really think about this, if you really, really think about what we're talking about, what Kirk did was kind of a prayer. When he cussed his son out. If you don't get your shit together, boy, I will come over there and actively whoop your ass. You and left. I'm just saying, you know. That was not a prayer. That that, that was a declaration. That was a declaration. 
that comes from your experience of being cussed out. But <laughs> you all, this is a disclaimer. I'm just joking. We know, but the listeners may not. Listeners, he's joking. Every time we record a podcast, I I think this has ruined my future political career, and I can never go into politics because of Brandon Maxwell. The chair of the finance committee wants everyone to know that it is well beyond time for black folks to get their 40 acres and a mule. And since y'all like to laugh every time she brings it up, she said she going to give y'all something to talk about. Alderman Robin Sue Simmons in Evanston, Illinois, said that the last time she brought up reparations for black people, her fellow council members looked at her laughing and said, are you high right now? And that was the moment that the idea came to mind. Let's tax marijuana sales and give the profits to black people in direct payments. Have y'all heard about this? Is this something that happened? Are black people getting proceeds from marijuana? So I embellished the story a little bit. I don't know if someone asked her if she was high. I was like, I didn't see that at all. So if you haven't learned yet, Katie and listeners, the church announcements are a moment where we bring a little bit of levity into each episode and we frame things that are happening in the world in a comedic fashion to get into the truth of the matter. It's truth, but maybe not accurate. Like the Bible. Don't do that Bible shit today. I'm not going down that road. We, I mean, I don't think you're wrong, but... So what actually happened is there's a proposal in Evanston, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago, um, where they're about to legalize the sale of marijuana. Come and on. What this council person wants to do is to say, as opposed to just uh, letting this happen naturally with a normal tax code or a normal tax practice, we want to tax this in a manner that contributes to reparation payments for black people. A friend sent me this, and, and the friend was actually pretty mad about it. Like, oh, my God, how are they going to do this? How are they going to fund reparations out of marijuana? And I was like, well, <laughs> I think it's a creative approach. So I'll give Robin Simmons props for thinking creatively and outside of the box about how we get money back into the hands of Black people for years of financial oppression and for the wealth gap and wealth disparity that exists in this country and world and has been widened by COVID-19. But the issue is, I think white folks smoke weed, too. But I feel like black folks, by and large, are going to be paying for their own reparations. I get why you think that. And I think eventually, maybe a decade or so from now, it will be structured in a way where that happens. But in the near future, like your weed man ain't finna go from selling weed totally untaxed to like, let me register my business. Like, you know, (laughs) I want the government to take their taxes out of this. You know, like that's just not going to happen. So the weed man's still going to be in the neighborhood and the white folks going to be going to the weed distillery. The white folks are going to be going to the distillery, to the store, you know, paying mm-hmm. for their stuff over the counter. The black people are going to be like, Ray Ray, you, I need a dime. Katie, you going to be getting your weed from the weed man or you going to get it from the store? You know what? I don't do weed, but I will say that in my really white neighborhood, somebody's smoking it like every <laughs> night. So they, they, they're probably going. Katie got a pot in the corner. Is she going to go snip it off the pot? <laughs> We we did try hydroponics last summer, but it was only for uh, kale and uh, tomatoes. Allegedly. (laughs) That's what white folks call and we You know, you never showed me the after pictures. You only showed me the before pictures. Was it actually marijuana? Mm -hmm. I am one of the three people in the world who has never smoked marijuana, but that's all right. But have you tried CBD? Have you put it in a brownie? You said smoked it. Have you consumed marijuana? Ever. I have not had any kind of marijuana. CBD is different. (laughs) It doesn't have THC in it. (laughs) Come on, give us the molecular structure of it. She's going to say CBD different. It's different. (laughs) 
Sort of. I buy it from the store where they tax exactly. it. <laughs> well, we want to follow this story. So you may hear us talk about this again in the future. But for right now, what I think I'll say, we want to celebrate Robin Simmons and the city council in Evanston, Illinois, for thinking creatively about reparations. And hopefully this will inspire other municipalities to do the same. Maybe not always attached to weed. One more little teary moment. As Katie just noted, her white neighbor be smoking weed every single night. That person ain't getting locked up for petty crime or bullcrap. Exactly. But black folks getting locked up right and left for possession of small amounts of weed. Exactly. And they're in jail forever from their three strikes and they're out from marijuana convictions back in whenever that was happening in the 80s and 90s. Thanks, Joe. That was Joe. <laughs> Why you do that today? Don't do that today. <laughs> I'm already kind of frustrated about what's happening in the world and white people. So let's not do Joe, too. You did it, Joe. Joe, you locked up the black people. Betty crying. Joe, we did it. Next announcement. The Social Justice Ministry wants y'all to remember that this shit is intersectional, meaning it's all connected. I'm talking about what happened in Atlanta two weeks ago now where there was an armed man from Crab Apple Baptist Church in Milton, Georgia, who drove to three separate massage spas and shot and killed seven women, six of whom were Asian, and one other human, who I'm assuming was a man at this juncture. We learned from a Spanish news outlet that Mario Gonzalez was detained before the shooter was. Officers from the Cherokee County Sheriff's Office detained Mr. Gonzalez for four hours, allegedly for his own safety, while the killer, the murderer, Drove to a new location to shoot more people. Didn't let him go until not only the other shootings had happened, but they had found the shooter somewhere else. Like, they didn't detain any of the other people who were in the massage parlor at that point for their own safety. He's got, like, marks on his wrist from the handcuffs, so they tied him really tight. That's some foolishness. I mean, in case people don't know, the dude that was picked up is a white guy. There's a lot when I hear about this not having read the full article, a lot of questions that I have, right? Some of y'all may know that I used to work in the sheriff's department. I was a commissioned deputy and uh, jail supervisor in Tuscaloosa, Alabama for about five years when I was in college. After hearing Katie talk about the fact that nobody else was detained, number one, that he remained detained even after other shootings happened. Because initially I would say, okay, just reading this, this small part, about him being detained. My mind was processing this, and I'm thinking this must have been after the very first shooting. And as the picture unfolded and they realized, wait a minute, this isn't the guy that we're looking for, you know, it would make sense that they would say, you know, Mr. Gonzalez, whatever, we're sorry, but, you know, this is Mm -hmm. kind of the procedural process. Most of us know that crimes are relational, right? Usually, usually, not in every case, if violent crime happens to someone, it's from someone you know. And I'm not trying to justify. I'm just trying to process and say. Let me tell you what happened. I hear what you're saying. And everything that you said is really logical. And it's logical for me coming out of the mouth of a black man. The issue is that same logic is in part what led to this. So the assumption is not only was there a domestic partner issue, but that the domestic partner issue occurred between two people of color and not a white man. 
So when I first read this article, I thought about the Central Park Five. If you don't remember what that is, there's a great four-part documentary, docu-series on Netflix, I believe, called When They See Us that recounts what happened with the Central Park Five. It was a criminal case in the United States. Um, There was an aggravated assault and rape of a white woman in Manhattan's Central Park on April 19th in 1989. And five Black and Latino children were convicted of assaulting the woman without any evidence to support the fact that they did that. And they tried to put it on these five young men and force them to accept blame for it. That's what I thought about. I thought, okay, they heard that this spa shooting happened. They quickly engaged in, and I'm using air quotes, an investigation to ask questions about who may be the suspect. And they locked up a brown human. And even when they had the white man in custody, my assumption is that the shooter knew somebody on the police force Mm. or knew somebody from the sheriff's office. And so the question is, is there a way we might pin some of this on this brown human so that this white man can go free? I think that was the logic. It happens every single day. I mean, I have so many friends and family members with stories. I actually have one friend of our family whose son is still in jail for a crime that was proven he didn't commit. But the jury didn't believe the evidence that was before them. He was a black man and in the wrong place at the wrong time. I don't deny that. I think the part that I was trying to lift up was that I could have understood Mm -hmm. if this happened initially in that first hour because they had no idea what or who. And as the picture unfolded, they quickly realized this is not the case. And they made a, a difference. Having worked in the sheriff's office... I understand what it is for someone to show up on the scene, not know what is what in the first 30 minutes or in the first hour. But in your role, in your capacity, would you have detained someone for four hours after you saw the person with the gun? Again, that's why I say when I was reading this, I was thinking, first of all, this happened in three different locations, right? Probably across three different jurisdictions. And so the people who detained the person in the first place probably did not see the person with the rifle in the second place, right? They took him from the scene probably to the sheriff's department or whatever. I'm thinking about my own experience when we work when I worked in law enforcement. And that's relevant. And that's what I'm and that's what I'm looking at. And so if the sheriff's arrested somebody, brought them to the sheriff's department and was interviewing them and somewhere in another jurisdiction something happened and the police caught the suspect, mm-hmm. it might be in 30 minutes to an hour before the people who actually have that person in custody are updated about the situation, right? And I think a lot of people who don't have that upfront seat to how these things play out are like, why did they do this? And how could they do this? And how could they do this? And something, now I'm not saying this is the case here because I think four hours is a very long time. Even if this happened in another state, if you know that this shooting has happened, those are the first people that you're contacting to say, we just had a shooting here as well. We think these two are connected. Right. It still might take, a few minutes for you to, you know, put these pieces together and figure it out and to make sure that people weren't working together and all of this stuff. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to give anybody a pass, but I'm trying to say the picture isn't always as black and white as we want it to be when we're talking about it from a distance. Hmm. Katie, what you got? Yeah, I mean, I used to be married to a police officer, too, and I, I, I appreciate that kind of perspective about it. I don't think they took him to the sheriff's department. He was sitting there at the scene the whole time in handcuffs in handcuffs and and my understanding and I of course don't know the whole situation is that nobody else there was in handcuffs and yeah and so that's a problem that's that's problematic for me 
they didn't tell him his wife died. Like it, it, they, they didn't even try to figure out who he was or, or anything. And if it played out like that, Katie, I think you're absolutely right. I'm thinking about the Aurora, Colorado shooter who shot up the movie theater, who literally was like standing outside. Right. Or, or yes. the Kenosha shooter who literally was walking yes. toward the police with a gun across his body. And they were saying, hey, get out of here, go home. Right. But what's the difference? Like, what's the difference in those two situations? Those two people are white. Correct. That's enough of these church announcements before I get pissed. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. The Holy Shit Pod is brought to you by the Theolab Media Podcast Network. Theolab believes that more candid conversations about faith can help us all become better humans. In the coming weeks, you'll get to know two more Theolab Media family members, Natalie Faria and Lisa Weaver. Stay tuned for two exciting new podcasts, How to Live When You're Afraid to Die and Healing Jephthah's Daughters. You can find out more about each of these podcasts by visiting theolabmedia.com or following at Theolab Media on all social channels. And if you're interested in supporting the Holy Shit Pod or Theolab Media's upcoming projects, visit patreon.com slash theolabmedia to become a Patreon subscriber today. And with that, open your hearts and your minds. It's time for our favorite weekly segment, A Word for the People. So the conversation topic today for the word of the people comes from a new Holy Shit Pod listener, Piper Jones. Piper has asked us to have a discussion about anti-intellect in the church or anti-academic, anti-university. Just this notion that if you want to be a person of faith, you can't also be educated. In some Hmm. religious context, Katie's already like, what? You can't be educated? Yes, Katie. (laughs) That's what some people teach in spite of what you grew up with in your denomination. For example, I attended a small liberal arts college, now turned mid-sized university, for my undergraduate education. And this school had a Christian identity and Baptist heritage, sort of. And that led it to require all first-year students to enroll in an Old Testament course in their first year and a New Testament course in their junior year. The first day of class, I think I told this story on the Mourner's Bench podcast as well, right? I'm sitting in class and the professor tells me that there are these two creation stories that are contradictory. And that they tell us different things about God and humanity. And I'm sitting there like, no, the devil's a liar and a deceiver too. You are a liar from the pits of hell. And (laughs) I bind you in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. You shall not call the word of God contradictory. It is in fact, I mean, that's literally where I was at that point in my life. Come on, holy tongue. I trust that in my shondo. I think once I got past the sort of hyper-religiosity and the faith that I was given by my church, I was actually just mad that nobody ever told me that this was here. Hmm. I was taught that the Bible didn't ever contradict itself and that to say so was a blasphemous act and an act against God. But after reading that text time and time again, after that first day of class, I was like, no, yeah, she's right. And when I shared that with my uncle pastor, he called it a misreading (laughs) of the text. Wow. And so I'm sitting here like, but if you read it, It's right there. It's plain as day. So it came across to me as a type of willful ignorance or anti-intellectualism, as Piper so helpfully named. It's whiteness. My uncle wasn't white. It doesn't mean he's not influenced by (laughs) generations of whiteness. I know. You got to break that shit down, though. 
his great, 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 great grandfather was taught how to read the scripture by a slave master. From the slave Bible. From the slave Bible. It's whiteness. But no, Brendan, this is interesting because I had a similar experience with my pastor from back home who really never had a chance to attend seminary. And so in some ways, when I told him about my opportunity, I think he felt he, he was excited because he could live vicariously through my experience. And I remember going back home to visit him during my first year of seminary, my first semester, actually, and talking to him. It's interesting. We were talking about kind of literary and social context in scripture. I was specifically sharing with him about the genres in scripture. You know, the entire Bible is not intended to be taken as historical fact. Mm -hmm. Some parts of scripture include genealogy. So, so so-and-so begat so-and-so, and and he begat so-and-so, he begat. That's intended to be historical fact. But there are other parts of scripture, right? There's songs and poems in the book of Psalms. There's the law. There are parables. There are riddles throughout scripture. There's the wisdom literature in Proverbs and in Job. And as I mentioned to him that the book of Jonah could possibly have been like this parody or satire, but not necessarily historical fact, but possibly written as a way to critique or correct through this narrative or through the storytelling of Jonah being disobedient and kind of being forced to do what God had commanded him. I remember his response. He kind of paused and he said, no, if it didn't happen, it wouldn't be in there. And I was like, interesting. (laughs) You know, it kind of shook me for a second because this experience was opening my mind in a way. And then to bump up against this brick wall that he really wasn't open to even hearing about any of this. He's kind of like, no, if it, if it's in the Bible, it happened. It's in the book. Hmm. Dude was in the belly of the whale for three days. And it's like, that's just not possible. (laughs) Like even the VeggieTales version, that's not possible. (laughs) Not even a cucumber like Larry could last in the belly of a whale. But the reality is I don't think it's anti-intellectualism in that case. What is it? I think this speaks more to what could possibly lead to a crisis of faith for people if the canon that is so holy for them that is almost synonymous with God is is now called into question if it is now somehow errant or problematic or there there are issues. It leads to people being anti-intellectual. I, I remember before I went to seminary, as I was kind of discerning and trying to figure out if I wanted to go, I was in North Carolina, Raleigh, North Carolina at a church. It was like going into the new year. So it's this watch night service. Y'all know black folks do watch night. I don't know if y'all Presbyterians. Do y'all do watch night, Katie? We do not. You know they don't do no damn watch night. Y'all don't do no watch night. We was watching watching for the Presbyterians. We was watching for, right. (laughs) (laughs) Make sure sure them Presbyterians don't come in. (laughs) Come in here. Make sure they don't come in here and get us again. We just not trying to get free. There you go. I was at this watch night service and the pastor was asking people to stand up and say what they were hoping that God would do in the new year. And I stood up. I was actually in North Carolina because I was visiting Duke Divinity School. Hmm. And I stood up and I, and I said that I'm hoping to be admitted in, in studying at a school of theology or divinity school. And a couple other people after me said the same thing. And at some point after like the fourth person, the, the bishop, the pastor stood up and he said, listen, uh, a lot of y'all saying y'all want to go to divinity school or school of theology. Maybe you just need to find you a good Bible college or, you know, a church that really teaches the word well, because those other schools, they have a ability to, to rob you of your Jesus. 
they, they steal your Jesus from you. And so I get what Piper is saying. And these things have, I mean, they do all lead to this anti-intellectualism. And, and I mean, how do we solve this, Brandon? How do we fix it? I don't know if we solve it, but I want to hear the white woman for a second. Because I think y'all are on the other end of the spectrum, like the complete and total other end of the spectrum. Yeah, but I'm, I'm glad to hear your stories because I remember being in Old Testament in college and they started talking about I, E, P, and D, all the four different... Um... <laughs> what in the world are you talking about? The sources, right? J, like, like the Yahweh's source? Oh, J-E-P-D. I don't <laughs> know. J-S1. I don't pay attention to that shit. <laughs> she ain't go to class. <laughs> <laughs> For those who are listening and haven't gone to seminary or done any sort of biblical study stuff, there are these understandings that we got the Old Testament, the Torah, from these different sources. There's a J source, there's an E source, a D source, and a P source. And when we look at different ways in which the text was written, we can kind of see elements of this throughout the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, also sometimes called Old Testament, but I prefer Hebrew Bible, as you were. Thank you, Brandon. Um, and I was surprised by that and went to basketball practice that day. And I said to my friend, what in the world is this professor talking about? And I remember her calming me down a little bit. And and I was more frustrated that I hadn't heard it because I thought it opened up the Bible in a different way. I think that was the part that I wanted. And I think that it was that experience that kind of shaped how I did youth ministry or how I did children's ministry because I wanted people to ask questions. I wanted people to ask why there's two creation stories so that there could be a deeper understanding about it. But even the Presbyterians who, yes, are all about an educated clergy and that pushes to the other extreme where they might lose any kind of connection with faith, they will talk about the inevitability of losing your faith when you go to seminary. Part of my story when I stand up, you know, to be examined in a new presbytery or something like that, I will say most people go to seminary and lose their faith. I went to seminary and became an evangelical, which is, again, a longer story. But the idea is still this belief that you lose what your grounding was. And I think, you know, some people are okay with ambiguity and other people are completely undone by ambiguity. And so, same. what I wonder when I listen to you is like, there's this, everything is based on scripture. And if you start shaking that up, then there's no faith left or everything's based on tradition in some denominations. And if you shake that up, then there's nothing left. And so, it's this inability to recover from things being shaken up. So it sounds like there's a relationship between what we believe about Scripture and the extent to which we're willing to ask tough questions, which some might call an intellectual act with and toward the text. You could correct me if I'm wrong, though, Katie, because I'm going to say I'm trying to process also while I'm talking, but I don't know that that's true culturally for different groups Mm. of people. Right. I think that's more true for black folks. And I think that's that also goes back to some of the histories that we've talked about. Well, press your claim. The slave Bibles, the way that enslaved black people were indoctrinated and inculcated with this is how you read it or this is what the scripture means or, the, or how it was placed centrally in their lives. I guess what I'm really trying to get at is that I don't know that white people feel the same way about scripture as black people. 
think it depends on theological persuasion. So white people who are more conservative are going to be really tied into scripture. But we learned the stories and we did, you know, the cute little cotton ball lambs in Sunday school class. So we knew that kind of stuff. We didn't do sword drills, right? We didn't know the Bible. Like you could quote something from Haggai right now, probably Sam, and I cannot do that. Haggai, uh, Zechariah. Because white folks be like, Zechariah? It's Zechariah. Whoever, whoever Zechariah was, was black. <laughs> His mama said, I want my baby to be named Zechariah. They said, did you say Zechariah? No, I said Zechariah with the E. <laughs> 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 I don't think that scripture was the basis for this academic inquiry, though. In the Presbyterian church, 60% of the people in a congregation, maybe 70, are going to be educators. They're going to be teachers. They're going to be lawyers. They're going to be highly educated group of humans. So there's always this desire to learn more parentheses about white people and and white understandings of faith. Like, we, we weren't necessarily in in my church or the churches I went to trying to learn something different than Presbyterian. So what we get stuck on is how things are governed or yeah. how things are done. So we won't get stuck on, that's not what it says in the scripture. We'll get stuck on, no, you can't move that table because it's been there for... 57 years. Right, and you can't move anything. So for us, it's the tradition. And what we miss in the kind of over-intellectualism is any kind of faith. So, I mean, but I still think that's a relationship to Scripture, right? So, if it is the case that the Bible was utilized in order to keep Black folks domesticated, keep Black folks enslaved, and so Black folks, due to slavery, formed a relationship with Scripture that meant it was authoritative. And white folks have always utilized Scripture for the sake of oppression, then you can have a different sort of conversation. There's a way in which in order to take what's written in Scripture— and utilize that to enslave people, you already have engaged in a type of intellectualism to get the text to that point so that you can use it to dominate folks. The history of white folks' relationship to Scripture has always been engaging Scripture from a place of power. Yes, but that's not changing. Like, we, we don't engage in changing that, right? This is where the white supremacy gets passed from generation to generation to generation because we're not challenging what we've learned. And that's, and maybe that's it when you get to seminary or when you, when you have these classes where you're learning about the different authors or that Paul didn't write all the Pauline letters or that David didn't write all the Psalms. Like, all of a sudden, you're having to learn something different depending on the people with whom you study. And that's why education, intellect, helps you parse out and understand these very important things about Scripture. Some of these things really make sense when you just sit down and think about them, right? We've got four Gospels, right? I think some people in, in church actually believe that these four disciples were walking around with a ballpoint pen and a notepad taking notes. Hell, I believe that. Whenever things happen. Right. And we've got these three or four different accounts because, you know, this one wrote it when it happened and this one wrote it differently and this one wrote it. Differently. And that's just not the case. James Combs, God rest his soul. He says that that human beings wrote scriptures. Yeah. I look at this. I think scripture has a human problem. Right. Human beings wrote scripture. And because human beings wrote scripture, it is inherently errant. But I think he was asked the question, is scripture infallible? And he said, you know, God may be infallible. Some people believe that. Some people might not. He was like, but the truth is, human beings wrote scripture. 
and human beings are fallible creatures. And because human beings are fallible, then that means that there is fallibility in Scripture. Yeah. As inherently, because it was given to us at the hands of fallible creatures. He also says that one thing that Scripture does not do is self-interpret. We don't even teach that in the churches. We actually tell people that Scripture clarifies Scripture. Exactly. Scripture does not self-interpret. From the writing it to the interpretation and all of it, like the fallibility of human existence is the problem that overlays Scripture for me. But that doesn't change my faith in God. What Katie was saying, because it is the crux of a lot of people's religion or relationship, if you take that away, if you problematize that, if you challenge that in any way, They have to hold on to it tightly and defend it at all costs because it is the basis for my religious belief. And if I lose that, I lose it all. Right. I mean, in the Presbyterian church, we are required to learn Hebrew and Greek. So then everything gets shaken up because then you know not just that humans wrote the Bible— and that some of the words in Hebrew and Greek mean 10 different things, and they're all different. Exactly. But also, humans have been translating it and paraphrasing it for generations and generations and generations. And that in and of itself has always created choices about things. Mm -hmm. For example, homosexuality wasn't in the Bible until like the 1960s, I think. So, all these people in the churches who are saying things about how homosexuality is is bad, and they're pointing to scripture that actually wasn't even mentioned before the 1960s in translation. I think, Brandon, you said you thought all the writers of scripture at one point like were hidden in a cave and, and their eyes rolled back in their head and there was this kind of smoke of God. It happened. I don't know what you, what do you, what, what do you mean? I thought that happened. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. I think, I think when you talked about it on the podcast, you said that you didn't believe it anymore, but even if you, I don't, I'm being silly. Even if that were true throughout the years of these different translations, humans have been involved. This is interesting, right? So we started with a conversation about anti-intellectualism in the church, and we immediately went to scripture, which is actually, I think, the place from which the anti-intellect is born in the church. Whether you're progressive, liberal, conservative, whatever, I think it oftentimes gets back to a question about scripture. And to me, the logical progression that this conversation has taken is actually what people are scared of. Yeah, it is. Because once you start to pull a thread, in some ways, you're pulling the entire thing apart and that thread's going to continue to unravel. Yep. And there's a fear that, well, we've organized our entire world and society and life together around the fact that this is infallible. Correct. And that you shouldn't question it. And what happens when it unravels? And so I would argue that the anti-intellect, anti-mindfulness, anti-academics are all based on fear Mm -hmm. and a desire to maintain power. There wasn't a week that went by in my high school Sunday school class where there wasn't some version of a story where somebody went off to college and their history teacher messed up their faith or their science teacher messed up their faith. And there was this sort of annual sending that happened when people went off to college that said, now don't let them take your Jesus to your point, Sam. Don't let them take your faith. Don't let them destroy your faith. You got to continue to believe God. And it's like, why is it the case that in some congregations, maybe not in Presbyterian churches, but at least in the churches where I was worshiping, we were sent with fear. We were sent to say like, oh my God, I can't listen to what they're saying in this class. And that resulted in a type of willful ignorance about basic shit. 
I think this might be a good place to put this particular clip when Cone is responding to Bishop Paul Morton. In 2003, I probably would have been like, tell it, Bishop Morton. Yes, sir. That's good, Bishop. You know how we do. Tell about your progress. He was talking about how the divine order is the spirit over the mind. And the problem with the church is we want to focus too much on the mind, too much on the intellect, on the thinking. And the divine order is that the spirit is over the mind and the spirit needs to lead the things in the churches and the spirit needs to do this and the spirit needs to do that. And Carl responds to him and says, we got a lot of spirit in our churches. I just don't know whose spirit it is. Ah, mm-hmm. talk cone. <laughs> talk like he said it, Sam. I can't talk like he said, ah, we got a lot of spirit in our churches. That's what he said. I'm just not sure whose spirit it is. Uh, so Cone says that the church, particularly the black church, is full of the spirit and is very good at producing people who can proclaim the word, who can preach the word. As a matter of fact, Cone says we have probably produce some of the best preachers in the world. He's talking about the black church. And I would agree with him. But he says, we have not succeeded in helping our people understand what the gospel is and to understand what challenges this gospel places on us within the world we live. And that's the danger of anti-intellectualism. We know how to entertain. We know how to excite. But Cone says we need a thinking church. And not just a praying church. Yes. And I agree with him 100%. And I would say that the word to the liberal, white, highly educated denominations like the Presbyterians, like we preach great exegesis papers. We don't preach good sermons, but we are like overthinking. And so my word to my church would be we need a praying church in addition to a thinking church. So it's more of an integration. When you brought this up as a topic, I'm like, I'm kind of anti-academic as well. You really are. It's within the context of saying, I love learning. I love broadening my perspectives or understanding of scripture, of the church, of faith, uh, of God, and, and how other people view God so that my understanding is broadened. But what I get frustrated by is this idea that education stops at learning all the big words or being able to articulate your Greek or not really translating what it means to think something into how you live your life. And so that's the part that that we miss out on. And my people are real good at talking about perichoresis and atonement and theological anthropology, all kinds of systematic theology stuff. But that that doesn't mean anything in the real world to people who are sitting in the pews. Right, because I don't think intellectualism is the goal. I don't think that James Cone was saying that you need to value one over the other. That wasn't the point, right? Oh, no, I was agreeing. You are. I think I'm just highlighting that what it seems like happened in your denomination was the inverse of that, right? Yes. I, I think I, when you said that we don't pray enough, you know, I'm like, I wish I had a praying church. I, I don't hurt that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wish I were also praying people. Correct. And so the question is, for whatever the level of spiritual fervor is in your life or however spiritual and holy you are, you need to also be just as critical and just as intellectual and just as thoughtful and like let those things be equal and let them inform one another. But I do think that there's this notion that we lean into anti-intellect, we lean into faith, if you will, at the edge or the boundary of our power structure. Hmm. 
So like in the PCUSA, for a long time, that meant we don't want to talk about race. We don't want y'all to question that. If there were Presbyterians who said we should not be enslaving people, if there were Presbyterians that said we should not be supporting X, Y, and Z, well, don't know no, because the Bible says this. And so we can be critical about all these other passages that don't have to do with this one thing from which we benefit. Right, right. In a Black Baptist church, it's keeping women from asking the question about all these women who are included in Scripture and who serve as models of ministry. In Black, white, Asian, Latinx churches across the world, around the world, that's what's at stake in the question about, quote, homosexuality. Correct. If you teach people the original language and you teach them to read that what Paul was talking about was pederasty and pedophilia when he used those words, and a very particular manifestation, not of a same-sex relationship, but of what we would understand in the 21st century as an inappropriate sexual abuse type of behavior— with older men sleeping with younger men. When you start to pull that thread, then everything starts to unravel. So if I don't have to hate gay people, and I know that I've finally got the choir director to shut the hell up about being gay, and he still switches a little bit when he directs, but at least he knows that that's not really holy and that's not really sacred. If he pulls the thread and realizes that he can be a whole human being and he might bring in his husband. Mm. So I think we pick and we choose what we want to think about. Yes. I can't look at most black churches and say that you're engaged in an act of pure anti-intellect because every single Sunday you preach, well, not in all churches, but in many churches with good preaching, you're engaged in an intellectual mindful act. You're engaged in an academic activity when you figure out how to mind the text for a sermon that's going to give people hope. So the question is, Piper, we're, we're sticking with your question is, why is it that you're picking and choosing what you want to think about? Are you only thinking about the things that help you maintain power? Or are you thinking yes. about the things holistically that, that also decenter you, that also disturb you, that also challenge you, that also transform you? As I hear you talk about picking and choosing, in some ways, I don't know how much that even matters, right? Because if every single church, every single denomination, every single leader or teacher or preacher didn't pick and choose, but they had the same curriculum Mm -hmm. and they went through the same thing. I think about one of my professors in seminary, Noah Erskine. Dr. Erskine, in one of his systematics classes, something that'll stick with me forever, he talked about the idea of revelation being involved in scripture and understanding scripture as we read it. And he talked about how this idea of revelation is always incomplete. He said, it's like looking at the sunset. He says, 10 different people can look at the sunset and come away with 10 different revelations. Mm -hmm. And they all be in some ways accurate and true. And they all be incomplete. Right. The question then becomes who or what makes you the arbiter of which revelation, which notion, which interpretation of that revelation becomes the standard, becomes the gold standard, becomes the gospel, becomes the law. Um, And I think that's another question that we begin to engage when we start talking about anti-intellectualism and how are we making space and room for multiple versions or multiple revelations that are also true, but that are also incomplete. Yeah. What that does is take me back into thinking about this ambiguity or making things more complex because the church is trying to say this is what is true. But what I think, and I don't think this is me saying what's true, is 
you've got to create an environment where everybody with all these different kind of perspectives and views on, on the sunset or on the text are listening and sharing together. But the problem is that does come back down to who loses power because we got a whole lot of Presbyterians and a whole lot of pastors. Well, it happens more in the white church, but we got a whole lot of people trying to hold on to their full-time ministry jobs with their pension so that they can justify that they are the ones with the answers. But what does it look like to say that the church or followers of Christ, that everybody has a voice, that everybody has a, a view of who God is or what faith is, and that we don't come to truth unless we are together? That's a quote right there. We don't come to truth unless we are together. Wow. How can you come to truth alone, right? It's impossible. That's powerful. Yeah. You can come to your truth. <laughs> right. But even if you're coming to your truth, I would argue that that's not a solitary process. Mm-hmm. You can't know who you are unless you are in relationship with someone else. So you can't even come up with your own truth outside of relationship with others. So I have two more questions, and then we can kind of wrap this section up. The first question is, I think oftentimes I hear a, a life of the mind being juxtaposed with a life of the heart or one that's feeling, right? Thinking and feeling are juxtaposed. And oftentimes in my church, anytime that I would start to ask questions that people felt like were too intellectual, they would say, you know, well, you got to go back to Hebrews. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And I mean, that was always sort of a refrain in my particular circles. And I'm just kind of like, yeah, but why can't I still think? Like, I can be hopeful and I can think. I cannot Mm -hmm. see something and still think about it. Mm -hmm. For you, what is faith? And are we trying to live our lives in a way that's solely about faith? Should faith, can faith empower or embolden us to think critically? Or is it something that requires us to shut up and just sit in the pew and take what the pastor is saying to us? Absolutely not. I think faith requires thinking. Without that component, it's not faith, it's indoctrination. It's, it's, It's something totally different. You can't get to hope without thinking, you know, like you just cannot. What came to mind when you were talking is preachers who say, I just think myself happy, right? Or when I think of the goodness of Jesus. Come on, when I think of the goodness of Jesus. And all that he's done for me, right? That's in our liturgy, right? Y'all ain't the only ones with liturgy. Like, if you know what's going to happen when we say, when I think of the goodness of Jesus, somebody's going to start shouting. Your thought resulted in a fear. It resulted mm-hmm. in it. It's mm-hmm. all over our liturgy. My soul looks back and wonder huh? how I got over. Huh? And, and that's a process that you go through. You think about contextually what was happening, what you was going through, how you didn't have no money, the forces that were coming My against God. you, the political forces, the social forces. You think about all of these situations that were happening and then you get excited. You get happy because when I think uh, mm, of the goodness of Jesus, of the goodness of Jesus, <laughs> when I think of the goodness of my ancestors, when I think, when I think of the faithfulness of, of my elders, mm, when I think my God. We're going to church, Katie. We're going to church. And so they can't live independently of each other. They inform one another. It gets so overwhelming or so challenging that a feeling does emerge. And then on the other side of that, reflection happens. There's not a Sunday where the Holy Ghost didn't fall in my church and we didn't talk about it afterwards, right? 
We talked about, ooh, Sally. Like, because because I didn't know why Sally Jackson was shouting over there in the Soprano section. And every time Sally shouted, I thought she was cussing. She would say, shout, shout. Is that a real person? Yeah, Sally Jackson's real. She passed away. What did she say? Shout, shout. <laughs> Sally is over there cussing, y'all. <laughs> like she, she got so happy that she cussed in the spirit <laughs> in the soprano section with her choir role. I love Sally. Got rest her soul. But after the service, we would go to Sally Jackson's house because Sally loved to cook for people, and we were like, "Sally, tell us your testimony. Your testimony is about informing the communal thought." Yeah. So I see the feeling. I see the excitement. I see the sadness. I see the joy. And then I reflect on that thing for myself and for others, which results in additional thinking Mm. and deeper feeling. So in some ways, what we are pushing people toward is a very shallow faith Hmm. because we think that their faith is only about what they feel. I have some stronger words for that. I wouldn't call it a shallow faith. What would you call it? Slavery. That sounds pretty precise. That's the image that came to mind as you was talking about that. Wow, if we, if we start to pull this thread, what we're doing ecclesially, how is it different than what was done to black folks in slavery? This is what you must believe. This is how you must believe it. This is how you must embody it. And these are the fruits that must come from it. How is that any different? It's no different, Sam. It's not different at all. It is slavery. And I think that's part of the challenge is how do we help people understand themselves as being enslaved? If all of white identity has been structured around what it means to be the enslaver and helping people identify with being the enslaver and not understanding themselves as also being enslaved. And if we have a racial hierarchy that positions some people closer to whiteness than others, right? And so now if I'm lighter complected, there's colorism and I want my skin to be closer to whiteness so I can benefit from that because I'm not actually trying to get closer to God. I'm trying to get closer to being on the other side of the paradigm. I also want to be the enslaver. We talked Mm. about this last week, right? About how there was this notion of an enslaved God And if my imagination has only ever tasted the white version of God, the white image of God, the white distortion of God, then I'm always trying to get closer and closer and closer to that. And that's what it means to be stupid. That's what it means to be dumb. That's what it means to be anti-intellectual. Because I don't ever want to see myself as being enslaved, but always getting closer to being the enslaver because the image of the God that we worship is an enslaver. Hmm. And so the people who preach and espouse that gospel have to keep us dumb. There's a big ass box sitting behind them with a big old lock. And God is inside of it. And it's a clear ass box. And if you just look past the bullshit, you'll see that God is in a box. Mm. that God is in a prison, that God is in the hole of a slave ship. And so I've got to keep you dumb and never let you think of yourself as being enslaved. But as you just said, you are. We are. So the last question for this segment is, how do we get to the place where we encourage more thoughtful faith and not solely thoughtful but a type of faith that relies on thinking for the sake of feeling and a faith that relies on feeling for a deeper type of thinking where there's a healthy interchange and not a binary between the two. I guess the first thought that comes to mind 
intentional word, is is that thinking doesn't always involve reading a book about theology. I mean, part of thinking, especially with what you said, is listening to the reflections and the thoughts and the understandings of other people. It's creating affirmation for creating a space or creating a community in which different understandings are part of the learning. Because if you think there's only one way, then you never create an integration. But if you think, as Sam was describing, that there are multiple ways, then you find that integration, you find that synergy. For me, I think it's this striving to create a bi-directional exchange of thoughts, ideas, exactly what Katie is saying, um, which involves this deconstruction of ecclesial hierarchy, which by extension includes patriarchy and all of these other things that have said, your thoughts only have value if you're the bishop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your opinions only have value if you're the pastor. If you have a church, if you went to seminary, if you have multiple degrees. And so creating these structures and these systems where we come together as communities to learn from each other, but also creating the structures where even those people who Cone talks about on that panel that he was on, he said, the problem is we can't get us together unless we are on stage. Right. Unless we are on TV. Hmm. You know, he says, but if we can ever get together in one room and to learn from each other and to learn how do we bring our people together and share their stories and learn from them, then I think that that's the way. Yeah. I think for me, the way to get beyond this is that every church needs to become a seminary and not just any seminary, but like a real seminary. Like, I think that the way that this happens is for us to no longer need seminaries because churches are engaged in such honest, transparent, clear, theological education that there's no need to break apart somebody's faith inside of seminary. Like the fact that there's even a need for seminary means that our churches are failing. The fact that so many students come to seminary and have a crisis of faith Mm -hmm. means that our churches are failing. And so I think what that really means is that we have to let go of power and we have to let go of control and we have to be willing to unbox and free God. If it sounds abstract to you, think about what we said last week about God being enslaved and think about what it means for God to be literally in chains. We got to free God even if that means we have to let go of our power and our position. That's the way that we get to a place where we don't hate thinking. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and go to the mourner's bench. Hey there, it's Brandon one more time. Do you have a podcast or creative idea of your own, but you just don't know where to start? Well, we'd love to partner with you in bringing that idea to life. Just send an email to what's up at theolabmedia.com to let us know what you're thinking and to begin the process of becoming a member of the Theolab Media family. Again, email what's up at theolabmedia.com to begin a conversation. We would love to connect with you and create something beautiful together. Now, let's head on over to the bench. So the time has come and the hour is nigh. The doors of the church are open unto you. Sam, did y'all say that in y'all's church? By letter? 
Of course. By candidate for baptism. Or by Christian experience. Or by Christian experience. Katie said, what is this? The hell are they talking about? I've been to a Baptist (laughs) church for a while. Was it a black Baptist church or a white Baptist church? No, it was a white Baptist church. Did did they say this in that church? No, but they had an invitation that... Okay. Well, the time has come. We're going back to the mourners bench, folks. And there are some people who've been living hellacious lives, uh, people that just be getting on our nerves. And we got to put them on the bench so that they can sit on this hard surface among the rest of the world because we've managed to put everyone here, at least everybody who identifies as a Christian, in the last few weeks. But this week, I'm going to start us off. Brandon, who's on the bench? I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. What you know, Katie? Katie said, I went to one black church service one time. <laughs> you know that ain't even true. <laughs> On watch night. <laughs> On watch night. <laughs> I was trying to make sure they didn't get too free. Yeah. No. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> the first person I'm going to put on the bench, I have two, and they're both artists. Maybe less so the artists and maybe more so the songs. So there's a gospel artist whose name is Lawrence Flowers. Lawrence Flowers and his group is Intercession. And he has this bomb song that he wrote a long time ago that's called More, M-O-R-E. Sing a little piece of it for us. Oh, the worshiper in me wants to be free from the cares of life that seem to weigh me down. The line that's making me put him on the bench is there's a line in the song that says, uh, Oh, the worshiper in me wants to be free from the intellectual mentality. And so that's like one symbol or one example of a song that I think serves to say that we shouldn't be intellectual. We shouldn't be thoughtful. And I can think of countless others. Like Fred Hammond has a song that I really love. I love both of these songs and have sang them, but just omitted these lyrics and or reworked the lyrics. There's a beautiful bridge or vamp in the song that says, uh, My learning could go on throughout the ages, but I just need the plain and simple what of what's real. I can memorize and quote a million pages, but I'd rather just express the way I feel. And so, like, there are all these song lyrics that appear to perpetuate this mindset that we shouldn't be thinking and we shouldn't be critical and that our thoughts do not actually inform our feeling. And so I want to put those songs, not the artists, on the bench. And I want to put the religious tradition that taught those individuals that those types of song lyrics would sell records. I want to put that on the bench, too, so that we can get to a place where we are truly thoughtful, feeling, faithful people. Who else is on the bench? I won't put on the bench, Katie. Ashe, amen. I knew you was going to say amen that. I was there like three times last week. <laughs> hey, you will be there more and again. <laughs> I'm going to take a page from Brandon's book. I'm not going to put the actual people on the bench. Nah, I'm going to put the people. But I'm putting the people on the bench because they think the way they do. <sighs> I'm putting this bishop from North Carolina. His name is Bishop George Bloomer. You stay calling names. You will call a name. Uh, you know, I hope I blow up one day and they come after me and be like, you talked about me. And I'm going to be like, I damn sure did. Damn uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> George Bloomer is the bishop who stood up and told us, don't go to seminary. Hmm. This is going to take you Jesus. And so I'm going to put him and alongside him, any other pastor or teacher who is anti-intellectual, not in the sense that they, they think you need balance, that you need to be spiritual and intellectual, but those who think, you know, we, Brandon, you're, you're from the Black Baptist Church. Yeah. And so I know that you can relate to what I'm about to say. Katie, you might be as well. I just don't know for sure. We grew up hearing, you don't question God. 
You know, if God has allowed it, hmm? it's for a reason, uh-huh. and you don't question it. That's what they say. You just don't do that. You don't question God. I think about this quote. I'm lifting up this quote. I know we in the morning's bench section and not in the podcast, but I got to lift up my boy Frederick Douglass. It's all the podcast. He says, I have found that to make a contented slave, it is necessary to make a thoughtless one. My God. Ooh. My God. I don't even know if I need to say anymore. I'm going to leave it right that, there. That's Bible. <laughs> <laughs> that's Bible. <laughs> <laughs> that is the truth. <laughs> Sam, I mean, it's just so crazy. Song after song after song is coming to mind right now of all these things that that perpetuate slave-like mentality. Like Hezekiah Walker's, we must accept what God allows mm. and we must never try to tell him how to order our lives. And the lead singer says, you know, we shouldn't ever question God because we'll, we'll never know God's way. Exactly. What? One of my favorite songs, I love Twinkie Come Clark. On, Twinkie. You know I love the Clark sisters. And she had that whole song, Except What God Allows. She did. she did. And she said, Don't question God. That's what she said. You know, like, hey, I can't do the runs like you, but you know, I had to throw my little song in there. <laughs> Katie gonna sing next week. <laughs> and and <laughs> but it says, except what God allows, you're better off anyway. Right. You are better off. Face the facts. And I think the assumption is that if we question, we're complaining. I've had some Correct. good days. I've had some hills to climb. I've had some weary days. Right? I mean, but when I look around and I think things are all of my good days, I'll wait my bad days. I won't complain. And I, I won't complain. Like, no. Sing. Sing, yeah. Katie. T- tell him, God. Katie. God has been good to me. No, do it in your voice, Katie. God. You know Katie's voice is deeper than both of ours. <laughs> Katie is a very tone. That ain't true. But if I sang Sam, then you would think that you could do the runs as well. So no worries. <laughs> but you know, but the, to this point, somebody else needs to go on the bench because I think when people are saying things like that, don't question God. What they're at, back to what we said, they're actually saying, Don't question me. Hmm. Because I have a certain interpretation of God. I have a certain interpretation of faith. I have a certain understanding of how this particular religious community should be organized. And you don't need to question that. It's never actually about God. God is big enough for your questions. Mm. Exactly. Mm. Wow. Who else is on the bench? Well, that's interesting. I'm still going to put the same people on the bench, but you just found the place at which it connects, right? At at which your experience and and mine connects. That's the Holy Ghost, Katie. That's the Holy Ghost. I'm going to put on the bench... All the white, heady Presbyterians, usually male. So let's just put on white Presbyterian male preachers and the women who choose to act like them, who (laughs) preach exegesis papers, who Mm. have never really thought about encountering an emotion in their life, and who use their knowledge, I'm going to put knowledge in quotes, to say, don't question me. Yeah. That's that's the point. I know my Greek. I've read all the Calvin Institutes. I've read this book. I've read that book. I can quote this poem. But you ain't never sat down with someone who's lost a child or you haven't been with someone when their marriage has fallen apart. That's what it means to be faithful. Yeah. So Terry, you're right there a little while longer, Katie, and give us an invitation for the day. With that being considered and everything else we've talked about today, what is the invitation? What can be said about God, scripture, thinking, feeling, 
what is faith and faithfulness really about? Being faithful means encountering God, Scripture, one another, testimony, the church, with your whole self, body, mind, and spirit. Hyper-focusing on one of these limits your understanding of the depths of the holy. Are you seeking the next emotional high or the next theological debate? Are you focused on the shouting and the running or the analytical dissection of the text? The invitation this week is to reflect on where you engage your faith and and really your life. Go for a walk. Sit in silence. Blast Christian radio. Talk to a friend. Whatever enables you to notice how you encounter the holy. While there, consider ways in which you might invite yourself to expand and explore a new way. Not, not throwing up old, but adding in with the yearning and opportunity and hope to know the holy more deeply with all of your body, mind, and soul. That is a wrap on today's episode. Thank you for lending us your ears. If this is your first time listening, do us a solid. Open your podcast app of choice and hit that subscribe or follow button. Now, if you happen to be listening in a podcast app that allows you to leave ratings and reviews, sort of like Apple Podcasts, go ahead and hit those five stars, leave a five-star rating, and write a little note to let others know how much you love listening to The Holy Shit Pod. We'll be back next Monday, same time, same place. Until then, peace. Peace. Thank you so much once again, Piper, for today's wonderful conversation starter. Hopefully you got a little bit of your healing.